Hey, let's give a big round of... So Love Europe's great. I had a son who went on it. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but the back scenes of that would be Dan and a woman named Robin Dingfelder uh, gave organization to it. So let's hear it for Dan for all, and Robin for all the work. And just everybody from our worship band who's done a phenomenal job. Uh, the whole walk through Bethlehem thing is a ton of work. Uh, Connie with special needs. So many people are doing great things. Billy gives direction to our service. I'm not going to mention Stephanie because she holds me to time restraints. Um, but let's give a round of applause for all those people too. I could mention my hairstylist. I won't. I fired him. Um, Okay, so we're getting in the Christmas spirit, but we're not here yet. Okay, this is great, and we're going to do a Christmas series coming up, but we're still doing our uh, three-part series on after the election. Things still need to be talked about. CNN just did uh, a massive nationwide survey, and 85% of Americans feel like we're deeply divided. Uh, People are deeply discouraged today, from communication theorists to poli-sci professors to people who track this kind of stuff. We've lost the ability to talk to each other. So the very first series I did, the very first talk was, let's afford goodwill to people. In the way that we talk about people, let's afford goodwill. So you may disagree with this candidate, you may disagree with this candidate, but the way we talk about people is we do it with goodwill. My second talk was, people are watching us today and we need to create an environment where we show to people how we talk about differences is just markedly different than how other people do it. Today I'm going to talk about a heart transformation. Uh, We can't just do behavior modification. We can't just do strategic rhetoric. We actually need to have our hearts transformed so that when we speak with goodwill towards people, we actually have goodwill. We just don't like our neighbors, but we actually love our neighbors. Now, fortunately, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this. So stand with me as we receive God's word. And if you can't stand, just assume a, a position of receptiveness. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You may be seated. You know, I saw this image in the news. What's happening in Gatlinburg, Tennessee is just heartbreaking. The wildfires have devastated communities and counties. We know a lot about wildfires here. But a reporter just happened to turn and notice in this one county that everything had been reduced to rubble except the statue of Jesus. And I, not minimizing what's happening in Gatlinburg, but to me this represents our current situation from a communication standpoint. Uh, People have referred to our politics today, the way we talk about it, as scorched earth rhetoric, that we are just incredibly mean-spirited to each other. Uh, The fact that Christians are present today is both good and bad. I do think people notice Christians, but if you notice the statue of Jesus, uh, he has been touched by the wildfires. They're scarring on Jesus. I think today, when people look at the church, it's not always positive. As a matter of fact, it's really negative how people uh, refer to us, how we talk about differences today. Augustine said something very interesting. Augustine said that as Christians, you can add to or detract from God's reputation. 
So God can have a good reputation because of what we do, and he can have a bad reputation of how we treat individuals. So the Apostle Paul steps in, and he says, listen, there's something you all need to do that's going to really help us as we love other people, and that is this thing called lordship. So remember, he starts by saying, I urge you, brethren. That word urge in the Greek, it is the strongest word Paul could have used. Uh, he is, uh, some translate it, I beg you to do this. Now imagine if your cardiologist said that. Imagine if your cardiologist said, hey, here's something I urge you to do. I'm begging you to do this. What would be your response? It would be twofold. One, you would assess um, the qualifications of this cardiologist. Is this a top-notch cardiologist? If the answer is yes, you'd be an idiot not to do what this cardiologist wants you to do. Then second, you'd have to ask the question, do I really need this? Well, I think the same thing is true with the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He's one of the key leaders of the church, along with Peter. So do we believe that Paul has the right to urge us to do something? And would we be fools not to do what Paul is begging us to do? Second, do we need this? The Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit feels like you absolutely have to make a fundamental decision in your life. Oswald Chambers, one of our great theologians, Christian writers, said, it is doubtful that anyone can grow in the Christian life unless they do this one thing. I draw that quote on the board with my Bible students, but I don't finish it. And I say to them, what do you think Oswald Chambers is saying is the one thing you need to do? And the answer is lordship. All of us maybe have accepted Christ as Savior, but that's only part of the equation. The other part is, have you given your life to Christ? Do you allow Christ to set the agenda for your entire life? And that's what Paul's advocating. But let's put it back up on the screen, the verse. Oh, I'll do it. Boom. Stephanie did not need you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... by the mercies of God. Here's here's Paul's motivation. The mercies of God. If this doesn't motivate you, what God has done for you, then you are short-circuited all the motivation of the New Testament. If the mercies of God does not propel you to make really hard decisions, self-sacrificial decisions, then Paul has nothing left to motivate us. Now, fortunately, the book of Romans is all about the mercies of God. So, very quickly, we'll take a look at just two. So in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Justification is what separates Christianity from every world religion. Justification, the heartbeat of Martin Luther, was that um, when you became a Christian, all of your sins were forgiven. 2,000 years ago when Jesus died, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. So when you accept Christ as Savior, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been done with. They're gone, but that is not the doctrine of justification. It's not that God brings you up to a zero-sum status, right? No, he imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees not you, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been draped all over you. Uh, You don't have to earn God's love. You don't have to earn his forgiveness. It has been given to you as much as it's going to be given to you. God loves you as much as he ever will right now. His love for you will never increase or decrease. 
Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't ask us to do things. My friend John Lundy, a great theologian at Biola University, says, with grace always comes responsibility, always comes obligation, demands. So God is going to ask us to do something, but we're not there yet. We're still looking at the mercies of God. So you've been justified. The righteousness of Jesus has been placed on you. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. God is not mad at you anymore. There's nothing to be mad about. Now, does the Holy Spirit convict you of things? Absolutely. But that conviction should never be couched in shame. If you ever hear this attitude, this internal voice that says, God is mad at me, or I should be ashamed of what I just did, that is Satan, not the Holy Spirit. God never uses shame. Now, he can convict you, and there's even something called spiritual discipline that God can evoke. Corinthians talks about this. But God is saying, I love you as much as I ever will love you. When I look at you, I see the righteousness of Jesus. But then Paul goes on, and he says this. For the law of the Spirit in in life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's talking about the Mosaic law. He's saying the Mosaic law was meant to do two things, the Ten Commandments. One, it was to show you what godly kingdom living was like, and more importantly, that you can't do it. It showed you what you're supposed to do, but didn't give you any power to do it whatsoever. So under the law, you felt this constant weight that you couldn't get there and that death was hanging over you. Well, guess what? The law of the Spirit in Christ has set you free from it. You're not trying to get God's love. You're not trying to earn it. You're not thinking of a good Christian system and trying to live up to it. Now, that is radical when you talk to people from other faiths. One of my really good friends, who's my academic mentor back at UNC Chapel Hill, is a Buddhist. And uh, we, we've had this conversation for 16 years. She's a committed Buddhist. I'm a committed Christian. We're deep friends with each other. Uh, there is much to appreciate about Buddhism. If you can't learn from Gautama the Buddha, there's something wrong with you, right? And again, as Christians, we don't ever talk this way to our detriment. Uh, another friend of mine at Biola University has just written a great book, Greg Tanelsoff, on what we can learn from Confucius. Right? In my class, my students read the Quran cover to cover, not initially to rip it apart, but initially to find out similarities between it and Christianity. The only reason this is controversial, what I'm saying, is because as Christians, we're often closed-doored with each other. We don't read the literature of other great world religions, but we should. Because of God's common grace, there is truth, says C.S. Lewis, in every religion there's a hint of truth. So when I sit down with Julia, we compare Christianity and Buddhism, but it's interesting to think of a Buddhist system. If you're Buddhist, then there's good and bad karma. It follows you all your life. Now, interesting thing about bad karma. Once bad karma happens, you're angry, you snap at a person, you do something you know you shouldn't do. Bad karma has been created, and you must experience the negative effects of it. Good karma does not wipe out bad karma in a Buddhist system. So no matter what you do, you're going to experience the negative effects, right? And this happens all throughout reincarnations. It's rumored that Katama the Buddha was reincarnated 20,000 times, right? So life after life, you have to kind of work this out. Now, there's good karma. You do good things. You reap good things. But that's the system. Who would want to live under that? There's a TV show that was really popular. It actually was about Buddhism. It kind of got it wrong a little bit, but it was about Buddhism. I'm sure you've all heard of this. The show is called My Name is Earl. 
Earl is this down-on-his-luck person, uh, and one day he wins a, a lottery. He wins like $300, and he walks outside, and he's immediately hit by a car in the middle of the street. He's now in a hospital, and he realizes, you know what's happening? I'm reaping all the bad karma I've ever done in my life. That's what's happening. So he makes a list of 300 things that he's done wrong, uh, shooting Gwen Waters with a BB gun, not giving his mom a Mother's Day card one time, blah, 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 blah. He comes up with 300 things, and the whole show is to go back and take care of those bad things, to make atonement for those bad things. Could you imagine what your life is like? If, if that's what you had to do, make a list of everything you did for your teenage years, your uh, first couple married years, your not, right? All of these kind of things. That's not Christianity. No, Jesus says, I free you from all of that. All of your bad karma, to use Buddhist terms, it's been done with. I've taken care of it. You are under grace now. You're under mercy. And you don't have to live a life of always looking over your shoulder. Same thing with Islam. Five pillars of Islam. Uh, In the Quran, there's a famous passage where Allah talks about these scales. And he's going to put all your good deeds here and all your bad deeds here. And he's going to see what happens. And that's, that's Islam. Christianity is like, we're not doing that. If you want, the righteousness of Jesus will be upon you and you'll be forgiven of all of your sins. This is the kind of mercy that Paul's talking about because he wants you to do something with the mercy. Not just sit there and think, well, this is just awesome and let's just high-five each other. No, he actually wants us to do something motivated by the mercies of God. So he concludes with this. I love this passage. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When you became a Christian, you didn't go back under the law to be judged. No, you received a spirit of freedom in which we call God Abba. Remember I gave a sermon a long time ago saying, I don't think Abba means daddy. I think that's a misunderstanding of the term. It actually was a term for a well-respected man within the community, an older man, and you got to call him a very intimate term, Abba. So um, imagine calling um, President Obama Abba, being that familiar with the President of the United States. Well, we get to be that familiar with Jehovah, the God of the universe. So we're free. Now he wants us to do something with this freedom. What are we supposed to do? Two things, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Our speech is how I'm going to use it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind how we feel about other people. So listen, today, how we talk about each other is unacceptable. Now, there used to be two things that were off-limit in American politics. Two things. One, the first lady was always off-limits. And second, a president's children was always off-limits. And today, we have violated both of those. Uh, A a comedian was um, talking about one of Donald Trump's kids and and said, I suspect he has autism. Deeply offensive to the Trump family, and they actually want to take uh, legal action against this comedian for how hurtful to that child just because of how he looked during the, uh, when he gave his presidential acceptance speech. And then the way we have spoken about President Obama and Michelle Obama is deeply concerning, and I think it has deep racial tones. Notice um, this Facebook post by a woman named Pam Taylor in a small county in Florida. She runs a nonprofit, but she sent a Facebook post that was read by the mayor of the small community, and um, 
This is what she said about Michelle Obama. It will be so refreshing to have a classy, beautiful, dignified first lady back in the White House. I'm tired of seeing an ape in heels. I mean, can you imagine? By the way, the mayor responded, Pam, you just made my day. And fortunately, she was removed from her position. Right? But the way we talk about each other. I talked about disinhibition in my last sermon, which means we just let it fly in social media, and there's nothing different about Christians. We need to be qualitatively different in how we talk about people. Because here's what Jesus says. This is remarkable. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's how the rabbis interpreted that, right? Jesus says, no, but welcome to American politics. Right? Hey, we love who supports us, and then we demonize the other side. That's American rhetoric today. Jesus says, I'll have none of it. This is what he says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? I'm supposed to pray for people who make fun of my religion? I'm supposed to pray for and love people who belittle my leaders? And Jesus says, yeah. By the way, notice what he didn't say. Tolerate them. Like them. No, he said, I want you to love them. Now you know why we're going to need this transformation of the heart because Jesus isn't saying fake it. Actually love the people that are opposing you and speak ill of you. Then he says this. I think this is so interesting. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Everybody can do that. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So how are we different? And let me just advocate today, we're not different when we're just nice. What blew my mind at UNC Chapel Hill, doing seven years of graduate work there, these were nice, compassionate, other-centered individuals, and there wasn't one Christian on the faculty. They blew me away in their activism. They blew me away in their kindness. Uh, Dan was saying that we're going to be selling goods from marginalized people. Uh, Many of the faculty would support people and support nonprofit business trying to help people in the most poorest places of the world. I was blown away by these non-Christians' niceness. So niceness isn't going to get us noticed. We're going to have to go beyond that. We're going to have to do something radical. We don't just put up with those who oppose us. We actually love those who oppose us, even when they persecute us even when they speak unkindly of us, even when they persecute us. So, most um, radical and um, interesting book I read in grad school. Grad school is great because it makes you read books you normally wouldn't get on Amazon Prime, right? You're forced to read these books, and yet they change your life. And this book changed my life. David Roman wrote a book called Acts of Intervention. During the AIDS crisis... Uh, if, you were in, if your community was inflicted with AIDS, how do you get people to notice? How, how do you make your voice heard? Uh, the shame of the AIDS crisis is early on, um, people judged uh, the community, the AIDS community. They did not come to their aid, and they had no voice whatsoever. So what started was something called AIDS theater. Uh, AIDS theater didn't happen on Broadway. It didn't happen off-Broadway. It happened spontaneously, organically in communities. But the people who made up AIDS theater were people dying of AIDS. 
So the most important part was the playbill that you would get when you would go watch a play. Uh, it would say, um, Bob Thompson was supposed to be the lead character, but he is in hospice right now and cannot do it. So he's, the understudy's doing it. Uh, this person died tragically a week ago. So to go there was to see people who had spent the last months, uh, years of their life doing AIDS theater. But now you're David Roman. You are a theater critic. So you go to watch this play, and what are you supposed to do? Imagine if you were a musical play critic, and you come to tonight's performance. How'd you like to be that person, right? So in an AIDS theater setting, David Roman is like, hey, listen, on a personal level, I I think every one of you are heroes. You're giving your life to tell the story of the AIDS community. I I think it's unbelievable, but guys, I'm a theater critic. I have to criticize. So act two wasn't great. And the one character maybe was too sick to do that part because I couldn't understand him. He called it critical generosity. That's what I think we need today with the Christian community. Listen, if I'm going to talk to my friend Julia, who's been a Buddhist her life, right, and I'm eventually going to criticize Buddhism because I don't think Jesus is like Buddha. He is in some ways, but radically not. And I do think Christianity is the only way you get to heaven. Eventually, we're going to get to that part. But David Roman is saying, but before you get to that part, Can you not compliment the fact that this woman's given her life to a religious system? Can you not compliment the fact that she believes in uh, uh, meditation? Can you not believe in the fact that her whole life is designed to develop good karma, not bad karma? Can I not just sit and say, listen, I admire your religious devotion, and it saddens me to think what I'm about to say could potentially hurt you. That's what David Roman is saying. And men men and women, as Christians, we have none of this. We stand up and the first words out of our mouth is, well, Buddhists aren't going to heaven and Buddha's not Jesus and Jesus is the only... And it's like, wow, you had me at hello. Holy cow. In communication, we call that a harsh startup. No, we want to sit down with people and we want to say, I admire you giving your life to politics. I admire that you care about these social issues. Now, at the end of the day, I'm going to disagree with you. I I don't think we should go about it that way. But I admire that you have a system you've given your life to. I admire that you're passionate about this perspective and you've made great sacrifice. Now, we start there and then we kind of move on. We start with points of agreements, move towards points of disagreements. Now, some may say, well, listen, so I'm just softening them up for the criticism. Right? All of the stuff in the beginning, yeah, blah, 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 love your devotion, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, if that's your attitude, then uh, you're a sophist. You're what Plato hated. You're just doing it rhetorically to soften the person so then you can bring in your criticism. So don't do that. Sincerely admire people. Sincerely be concerned about people. Sincerely learn about other people and be uh, interested in what they have to do. Then you can speak truth. See, Paul was serious when he said love people. And I say to people at marriage conferences, if you can't speak the truth in love, you don't speak the truth. Well, then I'm never going to say anything. Well, then don't say anything. Spend time with God. Have a heart transformation. So what? I'm supposed to love Democrats before I speak the truth to them? I'm supposed to love Republicans? I'm supposed to love Trump supporters before I speak the truth to them? Yes! 
Yes! Well, I'm not going to say anything. Good! Good! That was a good decision. God's serious about this. By the way, people know when they're loved. They know it. We do communication theories all the time. You send out vibes to people all the time. They know my office hours, right? Boy, these are confessions, right? My office hours. Certain students pop their head. I'm busy, right? I'm working. I'm busy. They pop their head in, and I look up, and it's a student I like. Okay, and I go, oh, hey, Dr. Muloff, am I bothering you? No, come on in. Man, that's awesome. Then you get, you know, come on. It's like a relative at Christmas. Can we just be honest with each other? They pop their head in and you look up and what is the first thing you're like, oh, hey, come on in. Am I bothering you? No, come on, no. We send these vibes all the time. So let me be as candid as possible. The LGBT community knows we don't like them. The gay community knows we don't like them. People from other political parties know we don't like you. But we're supposed to love them. Well, sorry, we don't. And let's just be honest. The beginning of repentance is honesty. God, you've called me to love my neighbor, and I'll be honest with you, I don't love my neighbor. How do I know you don't love your neighbor? Because we don't do anything for him. Right? I mean, how do you know where church cares? Well, it's where you put your time, money, and energy. Bottom line, that's what a community thinks. Money, time, energy. That's why I love OC United. I think what they're doing for the foster care system is unbelievable. I I think Love Europe is great. We send out a bazillion teams. We care about Syrian refugees, and we send teams out to care for them. We, We help people. That's what I love about Biola. 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 That's what I love about Evie Free and Biola, okay? (laughs) So critical generosity. Am I ready to criticize you? My first question is, do you love that person? Are you concerned about that person? No. Okay, then let's not go into this conversation. The climate is not ready. Your heart is not ready to have this conversation. Uh, My friend Crawford Leritz said this. I'll never forget it. How you believe God views you determines how you view others. So how does God view you? When you go to God, do you just go to him like, oh man, I had a bad week. I'm not a very good Christian. Oh man, I just stink at this Christian life. Is that how God views you? When you come to God, he is delighted. That was the point of the uh, prodigal son. Jesus paints the worst-case scenario. Let me think of the worst possible situation I can think of. A a child who wishes his father was dead to get the inheritance, squanders the inheritance in really un-Jewish ways, and then has the audacity to come back, not because he wants the father's love, if you read the parable. He just thinks, hey, my father's servants eat better than I do. I'm starving right now, so I'm just going to go back and be a servant so I can eat well. That's a crummy motivation to come back, right? But he does. What does the father do? He runs to that child. Runs. So men and women, you could have the crappiest week you can think of. I'm sorry for my language. It's from the message. Okay. Um, the, the... <laughs> Poor Eugene Peterson. I'm so sorry. Um, you've had the crummiest week you can think of. 
and you come to God, it tells me in a heartbeat what you think of God. Remember Mike Erie gave that sermon? I've never forgotten the sermon. He said, what's the best day to sin? The best day to sin is on Monday because you have the rest of the week to clean up your act before Sunday. And he said, that's a horrible way to think. Does God know your sin? Yeah, of course he does. Does he want you to do things? Of course he does. But in the meantime, you have to work from a basis of love. And God loves you and he's giving you his mercy. Now, now God is saying, give that to other people. Now, some of us need to have our minds renewed, okay? So very quickly, psychologists tell us, here's how you renew your mind. If you have this negative self-talk. First, uh, the person who is speaking to you, if you're going to allow that person to to, um, overcome your negative self-talk, you have to believe that person is competent. Does that person know what he or she's talking about? Second, it has to be personal rather than general. If I said to you, hey, uh, EV Free is just an awesome congregation and they're all really loving people, it doesn't change your self-talk one iota because it wasn't specific. If I point to a specific person like Dan and I said, Dan, you're loving, kind, and gentle, it could actually change him because it was specifically addressed to him. Now, here's the million-dollar question. When you think about the Bible, does it fulfill both criteria? Do you feel like God is competent in your life? And second, is it specific or just general? In other words, does God love the whole world, love all Christians, or does he love you? The purpose of the parables that Jesus gave, uh, remember when, when one shepherd loses a sheep, what does he do? He leaves, the, he leaves the 99, he goes to the one. When a woman loses one coin, what does she do? She uh, turns the whole house up looking for it. When one prodigal son leaves and comes back, what does the father do? He runs. The most important part of those three parables is the one, the one, the one. Jesus loves the one. So he knows your name and that's why he died. Jesus died collectively for the world, but he did it person by person. So he absolutely knows your name. Remember, Jesus would say the hairs on your head are numbered. Jesus knows who you are, and he died for you. So do we let that change your self-talk? Hey, very quickly, we just did two sacraments. Um, The the church has many sacraments, but the sacrament of communion is really interesting. Uh, regularly, and John Calvin would say every time the doors of the church open, we ought to have communion. Because you need to regularly remember, this was the body broken for you and this was the blood spilt for you. Receive that, own that, and then live that. So I think communion is incredibly important. But he also gave us the sacrament of baptism. Now here's the problem with baptism. It's only done once. It's a public declaration that I'm all in with God. I'm not going to live my life based on my priorities principles, but I'm going to adopt kingdom principles. Now, baptism is only done once, um, so it's not as strong as communion is because it was done once. And my humble estimation is sometimes I'm concerned that young people get baptized uh, kids get baptized because I don't think they fully understand what they're doing I actually think it's more beneficial um, to maybe uh, know that you're giving your life to Christ making him Lord of your life but let's say that you got baptized when you were young now we need to regularly remind ourselves of what that was that you actually did a public declaration that you've embraced kingdom priorities over American priorities So here's what I want us to do. The greatest gift we can give to the incoming pastor is that we're all in. We're all in with Jesus. Now, his job is going to be to facilitate that, okay? But we're all in. So here's what I want us to do. As Garrett is playing the piano, for the next three to four minutes, I want you to stand 
if you want him to be Lord of your life. Now, now some of you are perfectly fine with God and you're like, you know, best of my ability, I'm trying to live out kingdom principles, I'm all in with God. You don't need to stand. But if you feel like, you know what, I, I don't think I'm all in. Or I used to be all in. I don't think I'm all in anymore. I don't think God has a very central part of my life, if, to be honest with you. I've been too consumed by career or grade point or relationship. I don't think Christ is Lord of my life. You know, one commentator said the problem with living sacrifices in Romans 12.1 is living sacrifices can crawl off the altar. Okay? So if you've crawled off the altar, I encourage you to do this. I encourage you to stand. And again, nobody's judging each other. And by the way, if you stand, you don't get any more of God's love than when you were sitting. This is just to stand to say, you know what? I publicly want to say, uh, I'm all in when it comes to God. Or I want to be all in, but I'm not quite there yet. I would stand as well. But if you're fine, you don't need to stand. We're not judging each other. By the way, do not do this to the person next to you. Spouse, do not do this and go, dude, you should stand, right? right? We're not looking at our kids saying, up, no, trust me, up, right? So Garrett's going to play. This is between you and God, and I'm going to give this about three, four minutes. let me add one thing if you're thinking generally speaking I think Christ is Lord in my life and I really do try to live kingdom principles but uh, over the last couple weeks I've come to realize my tongue Christ does not reign over my tongue he's not Lord of my communication and he needs to be Lord of how I talk to people Uh, feel free to stand as well
for those of you standing, let me just recommend two things. One, remember Paul said, brethren, we need to do this. You're never meant to do this alone. So utilize this church. I would jump in a rooted group. I would join an adult fellowship. If you're a college student or a high school student, I'd plug into our youth group. I'd plug into the college ministry. We're never meant to do this alone. Uh, So be with each other. And for those of you that a family member stood or a friend stood, you know what? Go up to that person and say, I really admire what you did. I really do. And I took notice of it. And what changes can we make as an apartment, as a family, as a marriage, as a church? What difference can we make? So everybody stand, please. And let me pray for us. Father, we come before you secure in your love for us, secure in your grace, benefits of your mercy. Father, I pray that we could take that mercy, that kindness, and give it to other people, even to the people who do not give it back. Father, that we would be known as people who love enemies, love those in opposition no matter what, even as we speak the truth. So, Father, we love you, and today let us rest in your goodness, your kindness, and your mercies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.